everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm happy to be with you. I'm Bob Weathers. Really pleased to be back. This is our third episode, and I'm really glad to be working here in the studio with Franz Salvatierra. Thank you, Franz. He's the co-producer with Austin Armstrong of our weekly uh, presentations. Uh, really happy to be back to, to kind of take last week's topic, which was holistic treatment for addiction and kind of pushing it a little bit further to tie it more explicitly into what we can do in terms of self-care. Uh, let me say a word about myself, and then we'll uh, dive into the kind of the, the umbrella term for this uh, series, as well as today's specific presentation. <clears throat> my background is in psychology. I, uh, my PhD is in clinical psychology. I practiced for uh, uh, two decades as a licensed clinical psychologist and uh, was uh, also taught in uh, local universities here in Southern California. I myself fell into addiction in midlife and uh, sought treatment for that, but the, uh, what the 12-step programs call the wreckage from the past certainly uh, was my experience where I, I um, lost my tenured professorship uh, in a local university, as well as subsequent to that, lost my license in psychology and have worked back into focusing for the last number of years in recovery coaching. That's what I do. My focus is uh, explicitly on addiction recovery. And it's not just theoretical or clinical or professional for me. It's also quite personal. And so I hope that that tone can be something that we share in this conversation. I'm aware that I'll be speaking to an audience that is broad. There'll be those of you that are listening that are yourselves uh, in recovery from various forms of addiction. And as I said, I am. And I, my first burden is to communicate, uh, hopefully, uh, good information to you and uh, uh, that's my first responsibility, but I also know that there are others uh, watching. Those that work in the recovery industry, those are people helpers, um, recovery workers, and therapists are listening in, uh, as well as the loved ones of those in recovery. And I really want to cast as broad a net as possible. I know that's the intent of this series, <clears throat> to provide, hopefully, practical, uh, applicable information that can be of use to you. Um, let me mention this as we start as well, is that I'll be speaking for a few minutes uh, here early on, 20 minutes or so, let's say, and then opening up for questions. And I want to invite you to submit questions in the chat function for this, uh, for this podcast. And uh, Franz will relay those questions to me in real time, and I'll respond to as many of those as I can. <clears throat> Some of you have, uh, have submitted questions ahead of time, knowing that the topic today is holistic self-care. I appreciate you doing that, and so I'll be addressing those, those pre-submitted questions as well during that question and answer period, kind of in the middle of the presentation. I'll also plan to wrap it up in time that if other questions come up in the second half of our conversation today, that you can feel free to submit those. And again, I'll do the best I can to um, uh, respond as fully as I can to your questions. And also, truthfully, if you ask a question, I don't know the answer to it. I won't sit here and fib. I won't lie. I'll just promise to do some research and get back to you in our next presentation. So I really value the, the, the interaction and invite that. The, the dialogue is, is part of what will make this uh, come alive even more for all of us. The overarching topic is plural recovery, and that's the title of a, a book I'm completing right now. And um, uh, let me just say a word about that, uh, th those two words together. Um, recently, someone was speaking with me about uh, the, word, the use of the word recovery and um, was articulating a good reason for not using that word. And... Um, uh, this person was talking about once having had years or even decades of solid sobriety uh, in one's backpack. Is there, does there come a time where you can say you're not in recovery? And uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with this person's logic at all. What I shared uh, was a response that ties into my current application of recovery uh, to myself. And when I speak to groups, I'm just coming right now as I do each Wednesday, coming from a, a young men's group that I facilitate at Beginnings Treatment Center here locally in Santa Ana. And when I use the word recovery there for myself or for those I'm working with, here's what I mean. It's, um, it's actually uh, ties in closely to what you find in the Buddhist tradition, the idea of our having an original face before we were born, uh, the idea of our, our kind of our stamp, our signature, 
our destiny, uh, I, uh, our potential. And I, I, I place great credence in that for all of us. And for those of us that have experienced addiction, it can, it can significantly derail us in being true to that original face. And so my thought about this is that recovery <clears throat> is, um, uh, is, a, is a way of recovering my relationship to that original signature, that original face before I was born. In fact, while I'm thinking of it, I'll mention further how I responded is that in ancient Greece, there was an idea of, of uh, causality, what causes, um, what causes something to happen. And they, they, they had our conventional understanding, the one that we have, which is basically A leads to B, the past causes the present. And we continue to hold that predominantly in Western society. But the ancient Greeks had another notion. <clears throat> they called it final causation. And the idea is, is not that hard to understand, but it may be enigmatic, is that their view was, that, was just as the past causes the present, that the future is calling us into it. And in their way of understanding, you could just as easily say that the future causes the present as you could that the past causes the present. I know that that's counterintuitive. Um, it gets picked up in the various religious traditions of the world uh, when, you, when you hear about uh, concepts like uh, uh, God's destiny for you, uh, that kind of understanding, or like in the, the uh, Hebrew Bible, the idea of birthright. Um, it also gets picked up in the Eastern traditions in terms of one's karma or one's fate or one's essential Buddha nature, for example, out of Buddhism. Um, when I think of recovery, I actually think of recovery almost in this, this second way of understanding it, that it's as much about recovering why I'm here and where I'm headed, that is, in the future, as it is about fixing something from the past. I think both are true, but I know that for me, the deeper I go into my own recovery, this is an understanding I have, and it's an understanding I have when I speak to others, including you today. So, first of all, the idea of plural recovery is recovering that, uh, that uh, one's truest self, or one's destiny. The plural aspect has to do with my understanding of healing in general, including recovery from addiction, is that as much as it's, it's, it's my responsibility, uh, if I'm an individual seeking recovery from addiction, I have tremendous responsibility uh, uh, for uh, managing that change within myself. Basically, I'm accountable to myself, and the responsibility or the buck stops right here. But I believe the flip side of that coin is how instrumental it is to successful and sustained recovery to be able to draw on resources from others around us. I always think, first of all, of our loved ones, that our loved ones can make such a difference in terms of the success of our recovery. But I also include here various social programs of recovery support groups. Uh, most are familiar with the 12-step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. But there are many other resources in terms of social support groups I'm involved in refuge recovery, a local mindfulness-based recovery that's, that's oriented towards applying Buddhist principles to recovery. There's also smart recovery um, and any number of other approaches to recovery, all of which I think really um, um, underscore the importance of plural or um, uh, others in, in support of our recovery. I also would include here all of the helping professionals that work with those of us in recovery. It's part of my own work as a recovery coach. And I think that as much importance as there is to taking self-responsibility, there's, there's equal emphasis that ought to be given to relying on the, the support and guidance of those in our lives that can facilitate steady recuperation of, of, our, of our whole selves. And so plural recovery for me situates recovery in the context of family and other loved ones, in the context of support groups that we're involved in, uh, in, so in, in, in the context of professionals that we might work with who are especially trained to help us with, uh, with our recovery process. And one of my burdens, and it's kind of implicit in these presentations, is that ideally a transformed society or culture um, uh, could and would and, God willing, will make a big difference. I've got a, a special um, uh, 
uh, crusade, I guess you'd say, on a personal level as well as a professional level in terms of doing all I can do to provide good information um, uh, in, in regards to addiction and recovery in hopes of, over time, reducing the knee-jerk stigma that is omnipresent in our culture. And it filters down then to our families and lo other loved ones. And so uh, ideally, plural recovery would involve a, uh, our living within a society that facilitates and supports the healing that's so necessary if we're ever to get our lives back again from addiction. And so I think a plural uh, is kind of almost concentric circles going out beyond me as an individual. And all of it's important and valuable. And so the idea of plural recovery is that we help ourselves help each other. As I help myself, I can help you. As you help yourself, you help me. Um, so in that spirit, then, of plural recovery, real quickly, last week we, we applied this, this understanding of, of plural recovery to a holistic model uh, for treatment of addiction. And we, uh, I'll, I'll review uh, some of that uh, conversation in just moments. Today, as, as I introduced last week, we're going to, this is almost part B to last week's presentation, is that today we'll be looking at holistic self-care, what does a holistic treatment model look like when applied to me, when applied to you? And we'll be looking at why uh, self-care and the way that we'll be discussing it is absolutely essential if we are to sustain successful recovery, that, that, uh, that it's required. And, and I think when we finish today's presentation, I, I, I believe that will be clear to you as well. Um, so if you'll look uh, at the next slide, please. For those of you that, are here, that were here last week, you'll recognize this quadrant diagram. It was a blank diagram that I asked you to draw on a sheet of paper. And just to remind all of us really quickly, I asked four different questions and asked for you to answer each of those questions in one of those quartiles. The upper right question was, how does a medical doctor define addiction? And we all filled that in. Then we moved to the upper left. How does a therapist define addiction? And in what ways does that differ from a medical doctor? Then we went to the lower right, and we filled that in, answering this question. How does a courtroom judge define addiction? And then to the left, the lower, <coughs> the lower left-hand quadrant, we asked the question, how does the loved one of an active addict answer the question of what is addiction? So we answered those from four different perspectives. Then I asked us to turn the piece of paper over, and on the back asked each one of us to answer this question, how do you, how do I define addiction? And my guess is that we came up with lots of different answers, but the goal here is to have an answer that's multiplex, that's coming from, from uh, many directions or many perspectives simultaneously. And so the answer to what is addiction is that it's all four of those uh, definitions that you gave on the front side of that paper, and it also includes the fifth, and it's some combination of all of those. We summarized what we came up with by looking at those four quadrants, let's say, that each one of them represents a different perspective. So, for example, medical doctors look at what's observable medically. I think I gave the example of what it's like to go into the physician's office and have your blood pressure taken or your height and your weight recorded. Those are all observable uh, 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 specific behaviors that can be written down and that we can agree upon and they don't really require for me to talk to you if I'm a medical doctor I can just gather that information objectively but if we move to the upper left-hand quadrant and look at what a therapist looks at they're actually looking at your private thoughts feelings from the inside and that requires uh, a different uh, means that requires dialogue and that's, that's the one thing that's in common across all the various therapies is that they're in dialogue with you as the client or as the patient in terms of accessing and then leveraging our inner world of thoughts and feelings. If we go down to the lower right-hand quadrant, our observable behaviors, this is looking at our behaviors in the context of society, and courtroom judges are, uh, are, are assigned to be arbiters of how well or how not we are hewing to uh, uh, societal guidelines for our behavior in terms of laws and rules and regulations. And so their answer to the question of, a judge's answer to the question of what uh, is addiction would be looking at it from outside observable action in the context of society. Maybe you've broken the law. 
in the upper left-hand quadrant, therapists would be looking at it from what might be feeding the addiction in terms of your, your psychology. For example, the effects of trauma in terms of stress levels and how that manifests in terms of self-medication in, in addiction. All of that would be uh, in the realm of psychotherapy. The upper right, the doctor would be looking at your your blood panels, be looking at your neurotransmitter activity, would be looking at your uh, the the duration and and the intensity of your addiction, those kinds of things, looking at it behaviorally. Now the lower left-hand quadrant, in a quick review, is is the quadrant of looking at our relationship, and this is those that love us, our loved ones, that that it's private, it does it's not it you won't get to this information on the outside. You have to interview our loved ones to find out what their definition of addiction is. And it's oftentimes cultured by the stress, the trauma of what it's like to be in a relationship to somebody who fundamentally and repeatedly disappoints us. And so um, uh, that's gonna be a certain subjective take that's also very important in looking at recovery from a plural perspective. What we um, agreed on last week is that as valuable as each of these four perspectives, including the fifth perspective, which is our own synthesis of those, as, as valuable, uh, as essential as each one of those are, um, that there's not a one of them that is sufficient to explain addiction. While each one is necessary, there, they, any one is not sufficient unto itself. That brings us to today's topic as we apply a holistic treatment model to self-care. We talked about this last week, and I want to flesh this out today uh, in our conversation and get very practical. I'll be having you do a couple of assignments today, too. So if you, if you have access to a blank piece of paper and a pencil or pen, that'll be useful. But before we move into that, let me discuss for just a minute what I mean by holistic self-care. We're looking at self-care from the perspective of a biological perspective, which is the upper right-hand quadrant, or the way a medical doctor looks at recovery. We're looking at self-care in the context of recovery from the upper left-hand quadrant, which is how a therapist looks at recovery in terms of how we attend to our inner, our psychological, our emotional lives. We'll be looking at self-care from the lower right-hand quadrant, which uh, uh, has to do with how we function in the world. Not only in terms of are we obeying laws, but how do we manage in terms of our work in the world, our managing our finances, our navigating educational systems. Um, uh, these are things that, 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 that are key to, to self-care. They can get missed. They're as important as anything else. And they're really behaviors on the outside that we want to be focusing on. In a few minutes, we'll be talking about this in terms of how does my work and the quality of it uh, uh, relate to my self-care. And then finally, in the lower left-hand quadrant is, as you might predict, it's looking at the quality of our relationships, including our loved ones, our family members, and so on. So we'll be looking at self-care in all four of these quadrants today. We introduced this idea last week, and I want to reiterate it to, today, the idea of part-whole error. And what that is, in, uh, most simply put, is where I mistake one of these parts in this case, one of these quadrants for being the whole of my recovery or the whole of my self-care. And therein lies the rub. As soon as I relegate any of these other quadrants to being on the periphery, that leaves me at risk for uh, inadequate self-care. And in the, in the case of addiction, our primary uh, uh, purpose of recovery, narrowly defined, is to protect our sobriety and we'll be talking more about how it is that the neglect of any one of these quadrants or some combination of them is uh, directly correlated with relapse risk or uh, the loss of my sobriety. And to put it in English, when my life is out of whack, out of balance, I'm far more at risk for, for relapse than if there is balance. And for simplicity's sake, we're going to talk about balance to start with today in terms of these four quadrants. I'll talk about this more specifically. I'll give you an exercise right now, and then we're going to come back uh, after the question and answer period and after a break and get very focused in one of these quadrants, but we'll save that for right now. So let's look at the next slide. We're back to the quadrants. We're back to the quadrants now. Upper right is my physical health. Upper left is my psychological and spiritual health. Lower right is my work and other responsibilities. Lower left is my family and other relationships. So what I want you to ask you to do right now is take a piece of paper, divide it in fours, divide it with a vertical line and a horizontal line, 
you're welcome to write down these four descriptors. And what I'd like each one of us to do is to take a, a, a few minutes right now. We'll start with the upper right-hand quadrant, my physical health. And I'd like you to select a couple of areas having to do with your physical health that could stand more attention right now. I'm going to help you with this, okay? I'll be speaking in the context of recovery and recovery from addiction specifically. I really want to say that what we're talking about today is the way really to recover one's potential in life and that uh, it's key that we support as a foundation our physical health. And so common sense would say this applies to all of us whether we've struggled with addiction or not. Uh, but I'll be applying it specifically to the, to the experience of recovering from addiction. So for example, that if you're a therapist listening to this, there's no less reason why you, you, uh, that you should, uh, 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 shouldn't uh, do this exercise because any of us that have been therapists, uh, counselors, coaches know that the, the, the professional self-care is absolutely uh, pivotal in terms of providing help to others without burning out, um, uh, burning the candle at both ends, and I think that self-care is, is key. There's a lot of literature, increasingly so, in the realm of psychotherapy training and so on, uh, in terms of, of developing uh, a program for self-care, and we're going to provide a practical uh, map for that today. So back to the upper right-hand quadrant, my physical health. I'll tell you how I think about this, because I review this um, several mornings a week as part of my quiet time is that I start, it's part of my gratitude practice. I just practice gratitudes and I kind of break it down in various ways and I'll discuss the more details of that at some point probably in a future podcast. But for today, just for simplicity's sake, focusing on the physical dimension alone, I, I uh, because of my own uh, commitment to recovery, I express gratitude for another day of sobriety. And so I really do feel like that, that literal sobriety is the foundation or the, the, uh, the cornerstone to all the other forms of self-care we're going to be talking about. And uh, if you want uh, any clue of what I mean by that, I'd recommend that you go back to uh, go back to this, this Facebook site, Ask an Addiction Specialist, and review the first presentation. That would be two presentations back where I talked about addiction in the brain. And once, once we understand the effect of alcohol and other drugs on the brain, I'll think, I think you'll see the logic in uh, uh, paying close attention, especially for an addict like myself who's been prone to excess, the, the, the importance of attending to sobriety. I'm not suggesting for non-addicts that abstinence is necessary. Please don't, under, don't understand it that way. It's just to pay attention to our use of mind-altering substances, psychoactive substances, uh, and make sure that those are, are balanced. And if you're in recovery from addiction, uh, I, I believe that, that abstinence uh, makes the most sense. So I start with sobriety as, as part of my physical health uh, uh, and, and uh, self-care. Here's some other things that I look at and that I think are important to keep in balance. And you can add to this list. Uh, since I do this frequently, it's, it's simple for me. I, I want to make sure that I'm taking care of myself just health-wise in terms of healthful practices. I'm just on the tail end right now of a month of bronchitis that was a function of working too much and uh, being too... Uh, there's too many plates spinning. And when I get into that situation, out of balance health-wise, it, it, my body scolds me. <clears throat> and I'm just on the tail end right now of, of a sinus infection that was related to that bronchitis. And uh, I'm very interested in doing all I can to support my getting back to full health. So just general physical health. Constituent parts of that for me include exercise, regular exercise, I won't go into detail about that right now, but if that's something that you want to attend to more consciously, more intentionally, I encourage you to write that down in this quadrant. I also include here diet, making sure that I have a balanced nutritional diet. And uh, owing to my biology, I have to, uh, maybe everybody's biology but mine, I have to be especially mindful about my sugar intake. 
I, uh, I, I tend towards hypoglycemia, and so sugar gets me into this kind of spiral, and so I regulate my sugar in, uh, intake uh, as best I can, and I'm doing a pretty doggone good job of it right now, for which I'm grateful. But <laughs> looking at our diet, if you tend to overeat, that becomes a part of the conversation. If you tend to under undernourish, undereat. Hmm. Another uh, feature of physical health is uh, something that we can all attend to is our sleep. This is part of where I was uh, burning the candle at both ends and I wasn't getting enough rest and uh, my body rebelled against that. And so regular sleep. I also include in physical health, uh, I think it's incredibly important that we have some kind of self-regulation practice. And specifically by that, I mean some way of managing just on a physical level our stress, uh, uh, the, the amount of stress that we're uh, carrying uh, chronically. And so I'm a believer, it's already indicated in what I've said in our previous uh, podcasts, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, meditation practice. I've practiced mindfulness uh, more on than off for about 35 years now. And it's just an essential part of how I manage stress. It's, uh, there's so much research to suggest that meditation and yoga, uh, I mentioned physical exercise, uh, uh, various kinds of uh, vigorous uh, creative expression like dance, um, other kinds of athletic involvements. There's, there are many paths to our managing our stress levels. I'm a lifelong drummer and it's a very physical expression for me and it's also part of my self-regulation. I tend not to think of it from this perspective, I tend to think of it more in terms of developing my creativity about which I'll be discussing a little bit later today, but it certainly fits in terms of self-regulation. So I think it's really important to include that in our physical health plan. <clears throat> okay, so a couple of things to, to work on in this quadrant. Let's move to the left-hand quadrant, the upper left-hand quadrant. Uh, you know what? Excuse me. I take that back. I want to come back to the upper left-hand quadrant. What I want to do after our break here in a few minutes, I want to come back and I want to unpack this quadrant more fully. Uh, you'll see my bias here uh, as a psychologist by background. And also, uh, you'll notice that I include spiritual health. I feel like I want to discuss more what I mean about those in more detail. So I'll come back to that. So do me a favor and let's skip the upper left-hand quadrant. Let's just drop straight down to the lower right-hand quadrant, which is my work and other responsibilities. <clears throat> this is very practical. In fact, uh, all of all, all that's included here is very practical. Um, if I'm employed, am I doing a good job? Am I uh, working responsibly? If I'm unemployed, am I seeking employment? If that's, if that's part of what I'm planning. If that's not the case, am I pursuing education? These outer uh, indications of responsibility, as well as I include here finances, in terms of uh, am I handling my finances uh, responsibly? I would include here in the lower right-hand quadrant, um, taking care of the household. Uh, Sunday was spent for me in some household repairs. I think that becomes part of my self-care, creating an environment that is safe for one thing, but also uh, restful, that is a sanctuary for me. And that requires an investment in supporting that financially and being responsible financially. It also re requires upkeep, which is an expenditure, and I've got to be willing to commit to that. I think it's very important. I've included as part of my spiritual practice over the decades making sure, and I sometimes, this, this quadrant has been taxing for me sometimes because I don't by nature incline towards fixing door hinges and that kind of thing, but I've done it because I feel like that it helps me to develop what Carl Jung called one's inferior function so that, that it reduces the possibility of the imbalance I was talking about earlier that uh, doesn't serve us uh, long term. We're really looking at a holistic approach here that is fully biological, fully psychological, this lower right-hand quadrant is, is the socio, the, it's the social responsibility component. And the lower left-hand quadrant has to do with the cultural, which I include family as being our immediate culture. So write down a couple of things in this lower right-hand quadrant that you might give more attention to. That's easy for me. Um, I just need to more, do more of what I did on Sunday. It also includes my balancing my finances and keeping track of that, strategizing financially. 
for anybody who's been an active addict moving into recovery, there's one aspect of this that I would be neglectful if I mention it. It has to do with um, legal responsibilities. There are few of us in, in active addiction that haven't gotten into some trouble legally and had some uh, interaction with the criminal justice system, or in my case, with the professional justice system, uh, for me within psychology, with the Board of Psychology. And these are all things that need to be attended to as well. And they become part of my recovery process, and they become part of my ongoing self-care. The lower left-hand quadrant, here we're looking at our relationships. And that self-care, it may seem paradoxical to talk about self-care in the context of relationships, except that I hope that I've established that we're talking about plural recovery, and I don't see how we can talk about any individual's recovery absent from connection to others in a um, compassionate and responsible way. And so here I ask myself questions, how am I doing here? Am I giving attention to those that matter the most to me in my life on a regular basis? Or have I gotten so caught up in work or some other preoccupation that's taking me away from, from keeping balance here with, uh, with people that I'm close to in my life? And for that matter, people I'm not close to, am I being considerate in my interactions with people, generally speaking? And uh, this, can be, this can be an index of, of my spiritual and psychological well-being in terms of how I'm managing relationships in my life generally. And I think it's important for us to review uh, this on a regular basis to see how this is going. I want to say a word here because I'll forget to mention it later. I've practiced some version of what we're talking about consciously since at least the early 1990s. I can remember it because I was on a beach in Santa Barbara running along the beach thinking about this. How could I develop a program that's a program of balance that would meet the needs of all of these quadrants? I think intuitively I knew probably from my training as well that balance was necessary. I worked in academics where there was so much focus on developing, especially in my field, the upper left-hand quadrant. Uh, psychological knowledge and understanding, but far less emphasis on the other three quadrants. I'll pick one example. Far less emphasis on the physical uh, well-being quadrant. And it was sad to me, and I felt like for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for me. If I don't attend to my body, I'll end up like some of my colleagues with serious medical conditions that seem to be a function of just uh, atrophied attention to taking care of the physical body. And without the physical body house, uh, I don't care how smart I am or how uh, talented a researcher I am, I'm pretty hamstrung if my body's not cooperating with it. So I remember starting it, so that would be close to 30 years ago, but I can remember even before that starting graduate school, which was 10 years prior to that, coming up with a rudimentary um, form of this. I don't think it was particularly balanced, but I do remember this much when I was in graduate school. I did set aside time each week to doing at least one practical task around the house that wasn't part of just a routine. So if it was um, fixing a stain in the carpet, that's what I would do that, that weekend. I usually would save it for Saturday or Sunday. But I just want to make sure that I kept one foot on the ground even as I was studying high-minded academics through graduate school. What I want to say is that my observation over the years is that I've never found a way to keep all four of these quadrants in balance all of the time. Almost at any given time I can predict that that one will rise up in terms of salience. It's more important to me right now to be focusing on my physical health and I might risk neglecting um, my, uh, my relationship, let's say, my relationships. It might be that I'm focusing on the inner work that I'm doing right now, and I might, I might be neglectful of the lower right-hand quadrant in terms of taking care of financial responsibilities. And so there's a constant kind of fluidity for me. The fact is, is that it's never stable. It's always moving and dynamic. I don't know if that will be your experience or has been your experience if you've practiced something like this, but that is definitely my experience. And there's uh, there's not been a time where... Let me see if I can put it in the positive direction. Virtually every one of these quadrants has risen to ascendancy and also receded into the sunset at various times. And there's just always this adjustment. It reminds me of when I was a boy learning how to drive uh, my car with my older brother, Tony. We got in a car and I can remember overcorrecting back and forth. And that got better over time, thank goodness. But early on, it was just weaving back and forth across this country road. 
And I think it can go like that with this self-care is that we're just constantly self-correcting. Let me pause right here for a time of question and answers. I do have one question that I'm going to address during this break. And then we're going to come back and we're going to explore more of the upper left-hand quadrant um, in more detail in terms of psychological and spiritual health, okay? This comes from Dear Angela. Hi, Angela. Nice to have you with us again. Really happy for you to be here. And really happy for the uh, to receive your question, which is a very thoughtfully uh, uh, addressed question to today's topic of a holistic self-care. What I want to do, Angela, is I want to address your question in part based on what we've just talked about. And then if it's okay, I'd like to cycle back to it at the end because it will also be informed by what comes next in our in our uh, the next minutes after our break when we can move back into the material. Angela asks about relapse. That is when we're in recovery and we relapse back into um, addictive behaviors around alcohol or other drugs or, or other behaviors where we've been sober for a while and then we uh, fall off the wagon. The question is this, in essence, what is a healthy way to deal with, with relapse? I'm going to answer this at the most immediate level in light of what we just talked about, Angela, in regards to quadrants. And then I want to come back and look at the interiority of the question when we talk more about the upper left-hand quadrant, about the psychology and spirituality of self-care and and how to situate relapse, um, I think, in a sensitive and a motivating way in that quadrant. But I'm not going to discuss that piece right now. So let's talk about it this way. Remember what I've just been uh, talking about in terms of how it is that there's this fluid kind of movement to and fro between all the sectors of our lives. In fact, practically speaking, there are times in my life and your life too where there are external pressures or demands that require our sitting on hold some of our otherwise committed behaviors in these various quadrants. And that's just the reality of it. That's how it goes. My being ill um, over the last month has put some limitations on all the quadrants for me. And um, I don't... Um, I guess I, I guess I do want to say there's a certain attitude I want to have. I want to have an attitude of grace towards myself. Um, if 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 I relapse in a behavior um, around my addiction, and part of the grace that I afford myself is realizing that uh, the relapse um, may be there to inform me, um, uh, give me information of of where I need to go next. I'm going to frame this for right now in the context of our conversation about holistic self-care and talk about the quadrants that we've discussed um, and specifically focusing on the upper right, the lower right, and the lower left, is that I might well relapse when my, um, my body's uh, out of balance. I certainly have used in the past when I was actively addicted, when I was... Um, uh, stress out, not taking care of myself, not working on things that I know help me to regulate, for example, meditation practice, exercise. When those things began to fall away, I was much more at risk of increased use or relapse, that's for sure. And so my relapse is, is a, it gives me an opportunity, seen through the eyes of grace, gives me an opportunity to adjust. It's like, what am I... What am I missing attending to right now? Am I eating right? Am I, am I getting enough sleep? There's an acronym in the 12-step program of, of, of what makes us vulnerable to uh, relapse, and it's the simple word halt. When I'm hungry, when I'm angry, I can't remember what the L stands for right now. <laughs> One of you is going to have to tell me. When I'm lonely, how ironic to me in the context of plural recovery, when I'm lonely or when I'm tired. And really what they're talking about there is looking at certain states of mind or states of body that make us more vulnerable to relapse. And hunger is an upper right-hand quadrant phenomenon in terms of have I eaten enough or am I eating the right things? I told you earlier about my vulnerability to sugar swings if I ingest too much sugar makes me really vulnerable to, uh, maybe in the past, maybe made me really vulnerable to relapse insofar as I was ingesting, uh, for me, alcohol in mass quantity at times. And you can only imagine the sugar ups and downs I had with that. And just to manage the ups and downs of that, I would drink uh, or, or take other drugs to manage that. And that was purely an upper right-hand phenomenon. So 
How am I managing my upper right hand quadrant, which is my physical health? My relapse may be um, give me a signal, in a sense, of what I might attend to more fully. And you can follow this out in terms of the, the lower right hand quadrant and the lower left hand. If I'm dragging into work and not putting in a good day's work, I'm just going to talk about the context of work. Or if my work is uninspiring and I'm investing nothing in creating more of a creative environment, those are going to be drags on the system for me that might well uh, trigger a relapse for me. And so what can I do to make sure that I'm balancing out my work with play, that I'm doing um, um, uh, solid work and feel, feel good about that in terms of self-efficacy? And for me, it's really important that my work be creative and contribute. And so for me, that requires, it's usually not given in a job description. I have to, I have to find that and in, incorporate that into my work. And so as I attend to that, I can guarantee you that it, it ends up being a huge um, buffer for me against relapse because the work I do, including my sitting here right now with us, is incredibly meaningful to me and involves complete creativity because I start with a blank canvas each week in terms of what we're going to talk about. The lower left-hand quadrant for me has been a major bugaboo in terms of my own vulnerability to addiction. And maybe some of you can relate. I'm very aware of this in my own life is that so oftentimes my increased use or relapses have been due to um, uh, relational unrest, disconnection, speaking of L, loneliness, uh, strife, conflict. I just asked the gentleman today before I left how many of them had experienced relapse in the context of an argument or a falling out in relationship with someone that they loved. And um, it was universal there. It is universal. And so the lower left-hand quadrant is a piece for me. So if I'm in dissatisfying relationship or there's healing that needs to be done or there's forgiveness that needs to be tendered, I need to attend to that as well as part of my entire program of protecting my sobriety. And in the context of holistic self-care, that lower left-hand quadrant is, uh, especially for me, is really highlighted. How I'm doing in my, my central relationships is a um, very uh, powerful index for how I'm doing generally in terms of overall self-care. So that's a start by looking at relapse as an opportunity to reinspect how I'm doing in terms of balance and doing what I can, just like we're doing today, uh, doing what I can to get my life back in balance. And that's looking at it from the perspective of quadrants. I'll move into the upper left-hand quadrant and re-answer that question, take it a little bit deeper. Um, towards the end of our presentation today, Angela. Thank you for the question. Appreciate it very much. Any other comments or questions right now before we proceed? No. Then we will proceed. Thank you, guys. I promised that we were going to go up to the upper left-hand quadrant, and you can see how I've expanded it here because I want to flesh this out in some detail. So we're going to set the other three quadrants on the shelf for the time being and focus just on my psychological and spiritual health. I want to introduce an idea right now that in psychology is referred to as theory of multiple intelligences. I may have made reference to it before, but I want to flesh it out today, is that this upper left-hand quadrant, what I've done here is I've drawn these diagonal lines. Imagine these being the upper left-hand quadrant, basically, of my psychological and spiritual health. And imagine that there are a number of constituent components of my psychological and spiritual health. And this gives us a start. This is not exhaustive, but it's suggestive of where we might go. So let me talk about each one of these for just a minute. Most of us, when we think of intelligence, think about academic intelligence, IQ. That's well familiar to us. It's only been in the last two or three decades that we've begun to look at other uh, lines of intelligence. Uh, the one that's gotten the most uh, uh, um, exposure has been uh, uh, the idea of emotional intelligence. I recommend to you Daniel Goleman's book, uh, 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 his books actually, which are, are standard texts in the field. It's very interesting is that, well, let me just back up to cognitive intelligence there in the lower, the lower left-hand corner there of, of our diagonal lines. It's important for me to read good material and keep my mind stimulated and to grow in terms of my intellect. My capacity to take multiple perspectives is correlated at least in some degree by my accessing multiple perspectives as regular as I can. So for me, that means a regular program of reading. And I try to read diversely. I don't read just in psychology. 
I read a, I read a lot in psychology, but I read in other areas as well. Everything from fiction to nonfiction, from history to music theory to humor to you name it. And I encourage you to do the same too. If that was the only form of intelligence that would be done with this conversation, but it's not, it gets us started. The next one, which I've already kind of previewed here, is emotional intelligence. And that has to do with my own dealing with my inner world and becoming familiar with what's going on inside of me subjectively. There's all kinds of approaches and methods to this. A lot of people go to see a therapist or a counselor to do this. Some people rely on good friendships to do this until they stumble or get into an impasse, and then they go to see somebody who's a professional to help them with that. That would be to cultivate your emotional intelligence. And there's all kinds of personal practices that one can engage in to help develop this as well. Many of you probably have journaled or maybe do so right now. Some of you express yourself creatively in terms of various forms of expression to um, access your inner self and to express that. I do that through drumming and composing music, for example. It's interesting, Dan Goldman's research and those he's worked with, he's been affiliated with various business schools and they've studied uh, what, what correlates with the highest success in business and it's not IQ. That may not surprise you, but it's not IQ. You get some really bright people, you get a lot of bright people, for example, if they don't have this second kind of intelligence, emotional intelligence, uh, their business acumen and their skills are really limited. So this is a very important line to develop for sure. The next line is, as I feel like they're really related, interpersonal intelligence. In fact, I should mention to you, the best book I know on interpersonal intelligence is also written by Daniel Goleman, who's a psychologist. His book is called Social Intelligence. And uh, uh, it's very hard to separate emotional intelligence from social intelligence because we're such interpersonal beings to begin with. But this would be attending again to our relationships. And uh, I also include here my working on uh, my inner world, the, the people inside of me. I, the way I think about this, I'll give you an example. When you have a dream and you have various figures in your dream, Carl Jung suggested that you look at each one of those figures as some component of yourself. That's developing a relationship with the various selves inside. And whether that's emotional intelligence or social intelligence matters less, then we do something to dig into that. And oftentimes that can be facilitated in, in conversations with others. I think journaling, I think working with dreams, um, there's all, uh, for some people it's writing creative fiction. Um, there's all kinds of ways of developing this. I think there's also, it's possible to join into groups. Uh, I've been involved in several support groups and I talked about that. And uh, 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 groups can help us develop both emotional intelligence in terms of self-awareness, as well as interpersonal or social awareness and intelligence, just by virtue of interacting with one another. So I really support our being involved in groups. I've been grateful for that in the 12-step program and other programs that I've been involved in that encourage self-support. Nowadays, with the internet, there's all kinds of support that's available in online groups and blogs. Uh, uh, blog communities. So there's all kinds of resources available to all of us, and this develops that particular line. The psychosexual line I left in here, that really comes from Freudian psychoanalysis. I wanted to include that here because it relates to the next one. Our sexuality is so tied into our sense of identity. We're evolutionary, evolutionarily wired to be sexual beings in order to perpetuate our genetic line, to put it in that language, biological language, it runs deep for us. And for many of us, we've experienced trauma uh, uh, of either uh, violations of boundaries sexually or abandonment uh, in terms of erotic relationship. And so I include this here. It's kind of midway between the interpersonal and the next, the moral. Because one of the things that happens post-traumatically around uh, various forms of sexual abuse, for example, is that it gets it becomes it becomes a minefield for us in terms of acting ethically around our own sexuality, and so being self-aware about one's sexual behavior and uh, and and also honoring one's sexuality, one's eros. Um, eros is really our life instinct, and so it's not to be ignored without great loss, but to do so responsibly. Which brings us to the next line, which is the moral developmental line. There's moral intelligence. Lawrence Kohlberg and Carol Gilligan have done the, the, the bedrock work in moral intelligence. And that, that's one of the things that's really valuable for all of us in recovery. You get this in virtually any version of the 12-step program, any, any derivation of that. 
almost always involves developing a moral inventory. There'll be different language used for that, as well as making amends to people in our lives that we have uh, that we have wronged, and that puts us in the moral that puts us in the moral uh, line of development. It's very important for us to continue to develop that. In fact, for me to be acting immoral, even in the slightest ways. Is is putting stress on the system. We're not wired to. Uh, it, we're not supported in our psyches by violating our moral code. And so, the more that I can integrate and live faithfully to that, the better. And then finally, the spiritual line. Let me say a word about spiritual line. <clears throat> I want to uh, talk about this in the most uh, general uh, ways for right now. Is that I think of spiritual the spiritual line of development. Uh, related to what it is that you find uh, most important or most valuable in your life. So where are your values? Um, where do you find meaning? Uh, what gives meaning to your life? I think this is very individual how we answer this question. And uh, related to that is what is the purpose of your life? What purpose do you have for getting up in the morning and going into your day? What's your purpose? What's your plan for six months from now or a year from now, five years from now? I think it's very important to step back from our lives, the busyness of our day-to-day, and reflect on that, and that is to develop our spiritual intelligence. Now, the answers and even the, the techniques for that you can find are varied across all of the world religious traditions and all of uh, contemporary spirituality. There's uh, infinite pathways to developing one's spiritual intelligence, but uh, it's important that we attend to that. So what I want to ask you to do is uh, in the in the next uh, hours or the next day or two, is go into these lines of intelligence and do the same thing in this quadrant of psychological and spiritual health as you did in the three previous quadrants, is identify areas that you'd like to cultivate for yourself. Um, would you like to broaden uh, the reading that you're doing or other ways of cultivating your mind, attending lectures, uh, going back to school, taking a, a certification certification course? Um, are there ways of cultivating your emotional life that, that you've used in the past and maybe have been, have been ignoring or neglecting? The same with your interpersonal intelligence. How are you doing in the sexual and moral dimensions of your life and how might you better attend to an integrated way of embodying who you are as a sexual being in the world? And beyond that, in terms of morality, how are you doing in terms of keeping uh, uh, things straight in terms of your own kind of ethical code? Um, and then finally, in terms of spirituality, how are you uh, attending to your spirituality? My own sense of each one of these is that they need to be a part of our daily practice. It may not be, I, I'm not really supportive of checking off boxes. I've done that for a lot of my years and maybe you need to do that and that's fine. Maybe that would serve you. I, I tend to find that what that does is it gets me caught up in checking boxes and I'd rather just live this, this material out. Whatever way works for you is what matters most, I believe. And in terms of spirituality, I don't want to turn it into a behavioral program, but what are ways that I'm allowing myself to cultivate my soul and my spirit and uh, maybe I want to attend to that more uh, specifically maybe I want to stretch into areas that I've that I've never uh, explored before so why not do that now I've been talking about these multiple intelligences primarily in terms of self-regulation in terms of self-responsibility I'd like to situate most of them if not all of them also in what I refer to as co-regulation which is in my social environment and I think especially those middle lines, and I include here emotional, interpersonal, psychosexual, and moral, I believe that all of those are situated relationally. The other two are as well, but if, especially those middle ones, I don't know how to talk about uh, emotional or interpersonal intelligence without looking in the context of my relationships and looking to develop relationships that help facilitate growth in those areas. And so there's a way back to this, this that, that, uh, that uh, latter slide. There's a way that we're talking about kind of the interpenetration of what I'm doing to work on myself and what I'm doing with others to support my own growth and development as I support them. And I can't really separate those in my mind. In that spirit, let me mention one piece and I'll move to the final question and answer period here. Um, uh, next, In our next presentation next week, what I'd like to do is tackle this upper left-hand quadrant by focusing on those middle uh, developmental lines, uh, the emotional, the interpersonal, the sexual, 
and the uh, the moral. I'd like to look at those next week by introducing you to um, a forgiveness practice that you can adapt in your own way. You may have something like this that you're doing already. I really got this from my own recovery work, both in AA but also in refuge recovery, and have found this very useful. And I want to provide a, 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 a means for, for something that you can do on your own. It doesn't require going to see a therapist or a counselor. It may be that you want to, uh, to uh, bring the work that you're doing in your inner work to a counselor, and I highly suggest that. I value that personally, and I recommend that for all who can um, avail themselves of that. But the, the forgiveness practice I'll bring into you next week is something that you can do on your own, and I'd like you to take you through that very specifically uh, in support of what we've been talking about today, which is developing a form of self-care that, that covers all the bases. Before we finish up today, I want to I want to come back to um, uh, Angela's question from before. And in front, I'll let you signal me if there are any other questions that have come in. Angela, I want to come back to your question now, informed by this brief overview of the upper left-hand quadrant, specifically looking at it in terms of multiple intelligences or multiple developmental lines. And so, back to the question of relapse and what's a healthy way to deal with relapse. There's such a powerful pull, and has been for me around my using and my relapses. There's such a powerful pull towards shame. I want to say, isn't there? <laughs> I think any of us that know what it's like to lose our resolve, get distracted, get thrown out of the saddle, and fall back, fall back into a behavioral pattern that is exactly what we've wanted to um, to heal. It can be very discouraging, and it can quickly enough. A clabber into a kind of shame, which is really self-defeating. As we talked about last week, shame, uh, what it does in the brain is it basically paralyzes forward movement. And so, Angela, I want to answer your question in terms of the upper left-hand quadrant, too. It might be implied uh, uh, in your question. It might be that this is exactly what you're aiming for. But in terms of a healthy way, a wholesome way of looking at my relapse, can I understand my uh, can I understand my relapse? Can I understand it cognitively in terms of making sense of what might have been going on? I think it's really important to read as much as I can in the arena of addiction and recovery, and I'm constantly reviewing um, uh, books and articles in this area, not only for the work that I do as a recovery coach, but also uh, for my own recovery. And so I think. Good cognitive information can help me make sense of what happened. In fact, today's presentation, talking about quadrants and lines, is cognitive information that uh, can be applied very personally in our lives, but it starts off as just uh, theories and concepts that we must apply. So we start there, but I'm particularly concerned about those inner quadrants in terms of a healthy way to deal with relapse. How do I manage my relapse in a way that's emotionally compassionate towards myself? How do I understand my relapse in terms of the impact it has on others? And what must I do to heal those relationships so that those others that I rely on for support can reestablish trust in me and that we can be back on the same team again? If part of my relapse impacts my closest relationships, including sexual relationships with, with my, my uh, intimate partner, the healing continues there as well. And for some of us, the relapse may be to... Uh, sexual behavior, if, that, if, uh, if, if that's part of our addictive behavior that we relapse to. And so obviously that wants to be addressed as well. I think that, that the history of relapses, it's only ever been couched in terms of moral behavior. Why, not, why can't you just say no? Why can't you be strong? Why are you weak? Why did you fail? I, as, as is implied by my comments just a few moments ago about shame, I feel like that that, that that approach, which is well familiar to most of us in recovery and certainly is still standard fare in our society, is actually quite self-defeating and quite unhelpful. And so in terms of the moral dimension, is there is there a way to hold to my to my fundamental direction, to my wish, for developing uh, uh, myself ethically and morally that will include inevitable failures. There's not a one of us that development is a straight line. Take whatever you want to look at in terms of whatever skills you have. And right now we're talking about the skills that are required for maintaining sustained, uh, effective, lifelong recovery. And that is there a way that I can have compassion 
Uh, the way I think about this morally is that one of the most immoral things I can do for myself is judge myself morally out of hand, paralyze myself, and then almost guarantee more problems with addictive behaviors. And so is there a way to hold the longer view of, of, of a moral perspective and that I want to weave this, uh, this, uh, this failure experience, I don't want to soft pedal it, but weave it in the context of a necessary learning experience that as soon as I take that perspective, it no longer becomes a failure. Uh, it becomes like a something necessary for me to learn. It takes the, the, uh, the uh, zip right out of it for me. And I know that for me, if I can self-dispense grace, uh, is that it actually enhances my moral line of development for sure. Um, and then finally, in terms of spiritus, in terms of spirituality, uh, I, I, I bring my own failures, my own lapses. I bring those into my spiritual practice of meditation and spiritual re reading, devotional reading, devotional journaling. Even my online blogs are part of my spiritual work. And, and I'm working this material all of the time in various communities that I'm involved in online and in person. And so these uh, a relapse or a lapse or a failure of whatever kind once folded into community and once understood from a broader spiritual container can actually become part of what gets transformed into spiritual gold. And so I highly value that. I'm trying to remember a quote that just comes to mind right now. There's other quotes that are on the periphery. I'm going to quote uh, the, the uh, Persian poet Rumi who says, a prophet's soul is especially afflicted because it has to become so powerful. And I remind myself of that when I've failed, is that I'm afflicted by that failure. It doesn't feel good to me. But if I'm to grow, if I'm to really live into my original face, if I'm to, if I'm to incarnate the power that's been given me, uh, this experience is part of the learning. Uh, Rumi says in another place, those who insult me are only polishing the mirror. Well, sometimes I do behaviors that insult me. But if it's for the sake of polishing the mirror and clarifying the diamond that I want to be, how could that be, um, how could that be failure in the end? Um, it's in service of deepening and learning. And so it's a different way of learning, uh, understanding relapse. I'll finish with one final quote from, from uh, Rumi, so if I can call it up. Somebody came to him and asked him what the, uh, he lived in the 13th century just to place him. And uh, he's the... Uh, the best-selling poet in America right now, which is amazing. Insofar as he was a Persian poet, he wrote in uh, Persian, um, lived in Afghanistan and uh, Turkey, what we would call now. Uh, somebody came to him and said, what is the essence of spirituality? And he said something close to this. I may not get it exactly right, but you get the spirit of it. <laughs> I can't call it up exactly right now. It's, here it is. It's that, it's that sudden feeling of joy when disappointment comes. I think it's pretty close to that. If you can get to a place where when you fail or relapse in this case and realize, my gosh, what do I want to learn? What do I need to learn here? It really does convert that initial disappointment into joy. And I have to tell you, I'm beginning to get a taste of that at my ripe young age of 62. There are times where I am frustrated or when I trip, when I stumble, and it's beginning to come closer and closer to the default. So I just want to say as a sample of one is that I think it's possible to live more more closely to that, where rather than moving to shame, we actually move to a hunger for learning and growth. So I leave that with you today. Let me finish up with this. Our last slide here. I want to I want to thank you all for joining uh, me. Uh, I want to recommend two resources. Uh, I, I really recommend that you access uh, the Ask an Addiction Specialist resources here uh, through the Facebook. You just look up Ask an Addiction Specialist. It may be how you're viewing this, uh, this uh, podcast today. There are lots of resources there, including my this today and my last uh, previous two podcasts. I also have those podcasts housed on my website. And I put up my website there. 
because it's it's developing where there's more and more resources on that website. There's a ton of uh, uh, blog posts at this point. I post up these videos. I post up a lot of other podcasts that I've done in the context of my work with the journey of integral recovery. And I recommend you to that as a resource, and I'm going to continue to build that out, providing uh, uh, reading lists, uh, resources for you in terms of uh, bibliographies, um, uh, just tons of different information. So between Ask an Addiction Specialist and uh, me, DrBobWeathers.com, you'll find lots of resources there. You can also um, reach out through Ask an Addiction Specialist, reach out, and I'll receive your communication. You're also welcome to go to the, the website, and you can send me an email or call me through through the, uh, through the website. That information is there. Thank you very much for being with us today. Franz, thank you for producing this. Really appreciate your engagement. We'll be back next week, and I'm previewing now, so you can be thinking about questions you want to ask. We'll be reviewing uh, upper left-hand quadrant interior practice, all in the spirit of holistic self-care. And we'll be looking specifically at forgiving ourselves and forgiving others and what we can do practically on a daily basis to help us in that direction. Thank you. Many blessings to you. Thanks for attending. Take care until next week.